Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk. Discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Roddy Doyle is one of the most recognisable faces and voices in Irish literature or indeed European literature. He was catapulted to success in the late 80s and early 90s with a string of acclaimed novels set in the fictional Barrytown, the first of which, The Commitments, was turned into a successful film and a West End musical. He won the Booker Prize in 1993 for Paddy Clark. Ha, ha, ha. It's a terrible title to have to deliver if you're a presenter. I'm going to have a word with him about that in a sec now. Uh, famous for his unique use of dialogue and rich humour for many his work uh, perfectly captures the experiences of everyday life and never was that truer than with his latest book a collection of short stories called Life Without Children which is out now um, Roddy Doyle welcome to Times Radio I have to take issue with you about the title Paddy Clark ha 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 it's very hard to read out did you ever try it on the I tongue don't. before you decided on it I don't think it's a problem this side of the Irish Sea <laughs> Okay, so you can do the ha-ha-ha better, can you? Um, oh, yeah, way better, among other things, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, all right, don't start. <laughs> Listen, I'm part Irish, so you can't you can't take the high ground. Uh, but I, I, I mentioned there that, that this latest book of yours, uh, you know, in many ways perfectly captures this unique skill that you have to... To, cap, to, 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 to explore everyday life. Um, and I think it's very, very true in, in this latest collection, which seems to have been published with unseemly haste uh, after the lockdown, or certainly for the publishing industry, but actually is this incredible meditative look at the effect it had. What prompted you to write it? And, and did you write super fast? 
I'm not sure if I wrote it. It's a very short book, you know, <laughs> and um, so I don't know. I don't think I wrote it very fast. What happened was that I, I had started a novel uh, before the lockdown started and it was set in the present day. And when the lockdown started, after the chaos of the first week or so, when I went back to the novel, um, the present day didn't exist anymore. It, it, it made no sense. The, the book just made no sense. It wasn't marching up to the lockdown. It, it was going to have nothing to do with the uh, the pandemic or the consequences. So I, I had to park it and you know, leave it aside. And a lot of the things I had coming up, like stage productions, were either being postponed or cancelled. So um, I, I, I began to think of short stories. You know, it just seemed I hadn't written a short story in quite a while. But um, I'd been in Newcastle-upon-Tyne the week before the lockdown started. Uh, and while uh, ordinarily when I'm in England or in the UK, I don't feel far from home because literally I'm not. It's no great distance at all. And there are so many similarities. But because of the pace of things in both countries, I was you know, reading about and phoning home and being told that the schools in Ireland had shut down, that they were introducing social distancing and, you know, I had to read then to see what that meant. And uh, yet when I was in Newcastle upon Tyne, it was, you know, uh, stag and hen central. Um, you, doc- uh, you document that in, in one of the stories in the book. Were you also yeah, well, tempted that's... to do as your narrator did and chuck your phone into the, lo- into the nearest bin? No, you see, that's where um, that's where fiction takes over. The initial urge came from the observation. I mean, I uh, arrive at a hotel, I go down into the hotel and there's a a stag party of men from, um, I think, from from the north of Ireland wearing Hawaii Five-0 T-shirts. And yet at the same time, the images from from Italy, from Lombardy were pretty grim. And I was just, what's going on here, you know? So that's where the drive to write the story came from. But once I got up and running, it stopped. It wasn't autobiographical. So, no, there wasn't an urge to disappear. That came, I think, I remember reading an extensive article about people living in New York who used the chaos and the mayhem of 9-11 to disappear. And um, I just thought, well, well, here's a story. It's a, it's a, you know, it's not as dramatic as 9-11, but it is, I'm sure... Somehow, and in, in in the collection of stories, two people use the opportunity: one to disappear, and the other just to contemplate it. So I'm sure it, uh, I wasn't the only person. Most uh, of your um, writer, most of your narrators in this book, most of your main characters in this book are men, men of a certain yeah. age, m- m- mature <laughs> men. So yeah. two two of these stories, as you said, it's a short book. Two of these stories about men either making an attempt to or wanting to escape. Uh, what made you think that that was a particularly uh, prescient theme during lockdown? <laughs> <laughs> I'm choosing my words very carefully here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we were locked into the house for a start and we were, you know, it was a strange one. Uh, it's actually on the flip side that there's a there's a couple in one of the stories who begin to know each other again. Yes, I'm coming to them for, in a minute, but can we get back well, to the escaping, the Roddy? <laughs> yeah, well, I think everybody at some stage wanted to escape. And it's actually a woman in the story, gone, who takes the opportunity to walk out of the house hmm. in the knowledge that nobody's going to come after her. And I suppose a lot of us had the experience of walking down the middle of already what would normally be very busy streets 
as if we're in a Western somehow, like right down the middle of the road, safe in the knowledge that nothing was going to knock us down. And there was nobody looking to see where we were and nobody really cared. So I, I don't think it wasn't a personal. I was quite content being in the house, I think. Uh, and I work alone all the time anyway. So I, if you like, I've served my apprenticeship. But um, it was just the, I think probably the urge to escape or to get out came from the fact, that the literal fact, that when one did go out, it was actually quite an anxious occasion. Mm. You were slaloming around people. Normally in this part of the world where I am, you'd stop and chat to people, at least say hello. This time around, you weren't even meeting, giving them eye contact, you know, and slaloming around them, crossing the road to avoid them. Um, I remember in the very early stages, not wanting to um, touch the button that will, would allow the lights to change, uh, trying to hold, you know, I had two dogs and trying to, you know, keep a grip on the dogs and use one of my elbows to touch the button rather than use it with my fingers. Mind you, most times you need to uh, wait for the pedestrian light because there's no traffic. Yeah. I mean, you know, you you talk about um, it with some degree of humour, but I think one of the really striking things about this collection of stories is what an incredible insight, uh, and, and you realise how seldom you get this insight, it is into the emotional lives of, of men. And yeah. I wonder if you think that's a missing ingredient in, in literature, because I, I did actually oh. comment about it to my colleagues on the, on the breakfast programme this morning when I said you were coming on, and it, it really hits you with a punch even though these are not punchy, if you will, stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose, I don't know if there's an absence or anything like that, but I know, you know, as you get older, I mean, one of the, 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 the only compensation of being a writer getting older is that there's material, you know. Fewer and fewer people want to read about a- ageing men getting older and older, but at least I'll never run out of things to write about as, as long as I can remember. True, the but, daily humiliations you know? but you know on that note i did put so, a call out today to our listeners to, to to tell me all the great things about aging because uh talking to you also coincides with world menopause day so i thought i was covering you know men yeah. and women in one fell swoop and yeah. i said what's great about getting older what's great about maturity and i've literally had one message that said grandchildren <laughs> that's it yeah i suppose they must become a pain in the arse as well, or surely. I don't know. I don't have any grandchildren. But yeah. I do think there's one story in particular, a man called Mick. And he has not really managed to express himself once, really. He's loved by his wife. He loves her. But it takes him decades of his life to tell her something which to to me anyway as I put it down seems so raw and at the core of his being and yet he never told her so there they are like about 40 years married maybe more and he's telling her that you know he was fostered out to uh, various relatives when his father died that his mother uh, sent him out to um, other other relatives which is not an uncommon experience but she never knew. And he makes little of it or keeps trying to make little of it. But it's a huge thing. It's a huge oh, uh, disappointment in his life. It's a rejection that he's never been able to say out loud, you know, because his mother obviously was grieving and, and, and working. But 
it is also an, uh, and this is uh, personal to me when I was 15 in secondary school, maybe 14, I was very badly beaten by it. Um, I wasn't the only one, but very badly beaten with a leather strap by a teacher for no reason that I can uh, recall. It was none of his business. He wasn't our teacher. He was walking by the, in the corridor. Sadist. And yes, and I know that he took, I know I can, I can still see the sweat um, on his face and I, um, it was it was hideous, you know. If it was an actor, and if I was an actor, and I um, I needed to, you know, be upset and shake, I, it wouldn't take me long to get back there. Mm. But the the real the real point of the whole story in my memory is that when I was sent back into the classroom, I wasn't crying. That was the triumph, if you like. And all the unfairness and the sadism and the fact that at some level I was probably, I think, sexually abused in that case. You know, it wasn't he took sexual pleasure from what he did. I've no doubt whatsoever. That only occurred to me decades later, really, in any shape or form. But Mick, I gave that experience to Mick. And really, he carries it all his life. And it's years and years and years before he can tell his, tell his wife. And also, he still clings to that pride that he never cried. And I met, a, I met somebody years later who I went to school with and was beaten up on, at the same, on the same occasion as myself. And hadn't seen him in years and years and years. And we went for a drink. And it was the first thing we spoke about. You know, we were in our mid-50s at this stage. And it was the first thing we spoke about as if we'd been waiting for the opportunity. Uh, So I gave that to Mick. And the thing is that it took me years to talk out loud about it. But I think that's what's so striking about all of these stories, is this sense Mm. that here are these men, they're just decent, ordinary men going about their lives, but they are absolutely emotionally frozen and and in profound Mm. pain. And, and, you know, in each of them, no matter whether you're dealing with, you know, them thinking about children or about their relationship or about the, 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 the overriding sense that you get from these stories is that these men are desperate to speak. Um, yeah. Is that how but you tr- feel about, about, about the male of the species? I don't, f- I, I personally don't feel that now. And I don't think I have felt that in quite a, t- quite a while. But I think men in a way... I'm not sure, you know, you hope, you hope, you hope younger men are different. But men of a certain age, men of my age, I think, you know, I'm 63 now, maybe a bit older, but we're trained not to speak about our feelings. It's literally, it's it's the case that we were trained not to think in terms of our feelings. Um, We don't adjust well, I think, to uh, changes in circumstances. Women, I think, roll much better in crises. Women find opportunities to meet. Men, for example, when the pubs shut, we stopped meeting, you know, uh, didn't want to go to each other's houses, but we weren't allowed. Uh, eventually sat, uh, stood in the middle of the park, freezing, shouting at each other <laughs> because, <laughs> because we were trying to maintain the social distance, whisper shouting, you know. Do you think, do you <laughs> and, think that uh, men were hit, were hit harder then by the pandemic? No, I, I, I wouldn't suggest that for a second. Really? No. I, I would. No, it's only an old collection of stories. It's not a 
you know, it's not a broad look at the state of the world, you know. But I do so think no, it's I a think, broad uh, look at the state of, of, of uh, you know, contemporary manhood, you know, men perhaps, you know, in this, in this period of flux between what they were once supposed to be, which you've just described, and what they're now supposed to be, and the sort of chasm uh, down which they fall where, where they don't really know quite what they're meant mm. to be doing. I mean, confusion is probably the other defining emotion that these men are feeling in in these stories oh yeah yeah well i'm quite content being confused to be honest with you I, if the world opened up and i suddenly understood understood it i think i'd be quite disappointed i really would because i think a lot of what i do is trying to kind of you know in writing is trying to wriggle my way out of confusion and i, I think when you get to the end of a book in some little respect you have done but if the confusion wasn't there in the first place, there'd be no book. So I kind of, in a way, I'm I'm quite content being confused. But um, I think it, it's not only just about the pandemic either. I think what it, there's a state, there's nothing like children to make you feel useful, I think, in ways. Children of a certain age, you feel useful because you uh, you drive them here and there. You, you console them. Sometimes you teach them, you feed them. Uh, you entertain them, you make them laugh, you know, uh, you, and then uh, they grow up and there's a phase where, you know, you're an embarrassment to them. And that's part of the job as well. So you're redundant in a way, but in, a, in another sense, you, you still serve that purpose of being, you know, the dad. Um, and then they're gone. And that's when I think the real sense of redundancy kicks in. And it's easy to say, oh, now, you, you know, these ads you have with kind of, Couples in linen walking along the beach. Um, (laughs) Oh, I know them too well. Yeah, you know. They flash up on my screen every time I Google anything. (laughs) (laughs) They don't on mine, but there was some, before my mother died, I had to watch a lot of television with her. And there was one channel that showed reruns of old detective series, which my mother loved. And the ads were all these, you know, clearly couples of a certain age where they couldn't cope with modern drama so they were watching Bergerac and you know stuff like that and what these ads were there and what sort of ideal world is it they think they're creating they're so dreary and awful so you know but uh, I don't know where I'm going with that really but I'm enjoying myself no but as long as as you're having a good time (laughs) 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Roger, you were talking there about how when um, you, your children are young, you know, you feel useful, there's sort of proactive things you can do. And then it's a sort of steadily increasing sense of redundancy until they actually yeah. go off and, and never look back. Um, yeah. But the, And of course, the book's called Life Without Children. So why did you start thinking about that? So, so particularly during lockdown and how difficult was it actually to write a book so deeply based in a, in a, in a series of events in a period of time that was really unfolding? as you wrote? Well, I think in part, uh, I had two children still living in the house when the lockdown started. And then suddenly you realise, oh, there's two adult children living in the house. But they weren't just living there now, they were working there as well. So that it went from being just one person working in the house, that was me, to four people working in the house, um, all the adults in the building. And you become aware, you know, as you're walking by a bedroom that, you know, there's somebody working in there. You know, it's a fully formed adult. It's no longer kind of a little museum of childhood. There's a fully formed adult talking to his or her peers that are working away. And it was a strange one, really, to, you know, I finally accept the fact that these were independent adults, yet they were living in my house. And raiding my fridge. <laughs> and so it was a strange, you know, kind of joyous in some ways experience. Uh, and at the same time, unsettling. So the stories, are just, I came at it from two angles, really. There's one man who kind of loves the fact that his daughters have all come down for the, you know, come home for the pandemic, so to speak. And there's another couple who are absolutely determined that the kids aren't going to get in the door. They're not going to let them in the door because... You know, they won't even talk about them. They, they're having such a good time together at this stage for the first time in their lives, really, as a couple, that they don't want reality to intrude or the grimmer side of reality. So they even, as a joke, develop a room in the house, call a room in the house the panic room where they go into if they have to talk about the kids, you know. <laughs> they're well and truly through that phase. There's also... Uh, um, oh, go on. Now it was, um, I think, actually, uh, I, I'd rarely call myself wise in any sense but I think the decision to write short stories was probably a wise one because by the time I'd finished one there was a new layer of vocabulary a new norm had set in for example by the time I finished the second story masks were mandatory I think by the time I'd finished that one uh, you know the lockdown had been eased a bit and it went from two kilometres to five kilometres. So you could walk a bit more and that has huge consequences. You can see more. So the stories, you know, rolled with the changing circumstances. The most difficult one in one ways was the final one because I was writing, I wrote the final story, uh, Five Lances called, a year after it's set. Normally, I wouldn't give that much thought. There's not, there shouldn't be much difference between March 2020 and March 2021, but it was absolutely enormous. And I had to kind of 
go through my head and tear out words that wouldn't have been in the air in March 2020. Had to tear the masks off all the characters because none of them would have been wearing them. And it was a brand new experience where inhaling and exhaling was a frightening experience in most places. So I had to go right back. And um, yeah, so it was, but I think writing the stories certainly kept me active, you know, kept me creatively active, uh, which was a big anxiety at the beginning. There's one of the stories, um, and it's about a, a couple who are probably on the edge of, of, of separating, then are brought together by um, musical earworms. Yeah. Um, I hope I'm not giving too much a, a away. But, <laughs> but yet again, actually, we've talked about the men in these stories. But yet again, you know, it's the woman who's wise and all-knowing and giving. And, yeah. you know, we, we probably should be canonising you for services to, to, to womanhood after this book. Uh, do you <laughs> see women uh, as, as that all-knowing? No, but no, I tell you, I go back. It's nothing to do with women, but I I remember when I was a teacher, I realized quite quickly, if you wanted to know anything that was going on in the school, you asked a caretaker. You didn't ask the principal. You didn't ask anybody. You didn't ask any of the people in authority. You asked a caretaker. And I remember saying that to several other teachers, and they looked at me as if I was, first I thought I was joking, but I wasn't. And I knew that he, he, he it was a man, and I suppose still more often than not is, would know much more about what was going on in the school than anybody else. And I like the notion that characters, and in this case it's women, it's, there's a certain joy to it. He realized, you know, they've been in the same house, they've reared the kids. He never really knew she liked music. He never knew she had a Spotify account. He never knew. He's surprised and a bit resentful when he's when she can keep up, you know, that she knows bits about music that he thought were his property. I think men do that a lot. We and I, I, I can I can feel it almost any time I come across a piece of music that I haven't heard before and kind of going into the corner so that nobody else can hear it. And it becomes my personal. <laughs> Whereas I think, and I, I don't mention it to anybody except my closest friend. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a childishness in, in a way, and it's acquisitive in some ways, whereas I think women are more inclined to share, you know, so. Um, which, is our, which is our saving I think, grace, I think, in, 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 in many think, ways. Yeah. And I think also, as I said, women roll better than men in crises. And I think women talk women. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how uh, women were tra- in a way. I think women were trained to talk. Men were trained not to. Mm. it's the cliche but you know the cliches become cliches because they're true Um, can I bring up something that's in the news at the moment you won't have missed I'm sure the story of the the terrible murder of uh, Sir David uh, Amos uh, the British Mm. MP and lots of political figures lots of figures uh, in the public eye have been speaking out about you know the sort of threats that they've received you know on social media and indeed in the post Um, and it's something I think you experienced in the 1990s over a TV series receiving hate mail and, and, and death threats how did you cope with it at the time and 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 do you think that we live in increasingly polarized dangerous times um well going back to the first part of your question luckily there was no social media no internet um so or no facebook so i i did have to contend with hate mail but it came in the post and uh you know in fact there wasn't all that much of it the volume was quite I, 
I threw it in the bin. I think if I was who I am now, I'd have brought it down to the police station, you know, but I threw it in the bin. Um, it's very unsettling, really, really unsettling. Going down to the shops for a bottle of milk became a big decision for a while, for a little while. Um, we had two uh, toddlers in the house. It was, uh, yeah, very, very unsettling. But I kind of just threw it in the bin and went about my business. I had a, a, a slightly more, it wasn't as aggressive, but in fact, but because of the volume of it, I, I wrote something on Facebook, one of my two pints, you know, the two pints dialogues I, I, I've done yes. and have been published. And it was a very bad reaction to one of them, a misinterpretation of what I'd been writing about. And I, in, in my blissful ignorance, didn't realize that it was causing a storm on um, Twitter, I think, and on um, something else. And somebody uh, drew my attention to it. I don't have a Twitter account or anything like that. And I have Facebook Messenger, and I didn't realize that people I don't know could send me messages. And uh, just on a whim one night before turning off the light, I turned this, what does this button do? And I got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages just poured in. And most of them were okay, you know, requests to go and give readings in schools. But then there was a whole tranche of them. Most awful, violent, you know, uh, most of them by people whose names were disguised. Others plain and open. And like a recurring message from the same fella every day, die, die, die. And it was very... Again, you're thinking, you know, what's going on out there? You know, who's, but I, again, I, I just kind of ignored it. Um, but it is hideous. You know, it is hideous. I don't feel personally touched by it because I, I think I think politicians uh, get a dreadful time, an absolutely dreadful time. And um, I don't know if society is more polarised, but it seems to be there's a certain there's a certain branch of politics and maybe several branches of politics who just are determined to see the world as a yes or no, good or bad, a right or wrong. There's no uh, gray area in the middle. There's no, there's no room. I remember being taken aback and quite moved how, you know, a Democrat and a, and a Republican used to meet and have, uh, you know, eat and have a drink together. You can't imagine that happening now. I'm not sure. I don't think it's as um, uh, as 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 crass, if you like, here in Ireland yet. Though it's hard to imagine a member of Sinn Féin going for a pint with a member of Fianna Gael. It's just virtually impossible. So I think um, it's ugly. It's ugly, you know. And the notion that you can't actually even tolerate the opinion of somebody else, that you can't listen and then disagree or you can't even just turn away and walk away you, you have to respond violently it's quite um it's chilling to put it mildly thanks for listening to mariella meets with me mariella frostrup There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4, on Times Radio. Catch you next time.